You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This morning, our um, sermon is going to come out of Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have one, but you'd like a copy of the text, you can um, look in a seat around you. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Uh, when When you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And uh, like Lauren said, we are technically uh, in a sermon series right now, but we're going to take a step out of it for uh, just one more week. Next week, we'll jump right back into the book of Exodus and we'll continue on throughout the rest of the year. Um, I'm excited to preach the word this morning. Uh, it's one of my greatest joys and I'm, I'm very grateful to be able to do that this morning. I also want to wish all of the moms in a room a happy Mother's Day. Uh, Phil leading the charge. Whether you're a mom because uh, children of your own handiwork or whether you are a mom because you uh, have your children through adoption, uh, the Lord has blessed each and every one of you with an incredible gift. Uh, but I also want to take this time to acknowledge that while a lot of us will be celebrating today, there are some of us that uh, are mourning today. And there are those of us here that I, I know personally have uh, lost children due to miscarriage, have lost children to illness, to tragedy. Um, are, some are unable to have children, whether uh, because they're barren or there's a medical illness that just won't allow them uh, to have children. Uh, there are those that have wayward children who have wandered from the Lord, and there are those that desperately desire marriage and to have children of their own and just it's just not in the cards in this season of their life and we do a lot of we do a lot here at Providence to celebrate uh, children and family and marriage here and we'll continue to because those are good gifts but for those of you that this day rings a bitter bell I want you to know that the Lord is aware and he's near to you I want you to know that just because life has not, may not have turned out the way that you expected it to doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. He is still near, and I would argue he's not done with you, and he's still uh, writing and authoring your story. And so my hope and prayer for you today is that you would mourn the areas that are broken and extol the praiseworthy things that God has done in your life, that there would be both rejoicing and mourning if it's appropriate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us as we get into the sermon, and, uh, and then we will yeah, we'll jump into it. So if you will, pray with me. 
Father God, we, we thank you so much for this opportunity to sit underneath your word. Uh, God, we, we run nowhere else. Your word is the anchor of truth that we need in a world where we feel like we are tugged left and right, front and back. It is your anchor that keeps us steady, that keeps us afloat. It is your gospel truth that is the ballast to our souls that doesn't allow us to go under. And so, God, this morning we submit our hearts before you. We give you our whole person and allow you to speak where you need to speak, lead where you need to lead, and change where you need to change. That just God, just as you formed us in the womb, would you form us today? Would you shape us today? Would you mold us into being more like you? God, it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, before we jump into uh, what is called Mary's song, before we jump into that, we need to tell a little bit of a, a little bit of a story of what's happened up to this point and why Mary is singing. Because uh, if anyone ever breaks out into random singing in public, you probably should know why. Um, Gabriel the archangel, shows up to Zechari- this man named Zechariah one day, and uh, he comes to inform him that he's going to be having a child, and that child's going to be uh, named John, uh, who will become John the Baptist. Now, Zechariah was not, uh, was not too, he was excited about it, but he was shocked, because just like Abraham and Sarah, th- him and Elizabeth were very old and had no business having children. It was like genuinely for them, they were at the age where it was just not in the cards and they just kind of settled into that. But Gabriel shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a child and you're going to need to name that child John. Now, what's different between Gabriel and God is when God talked to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a child, they laughed and kind of jabbed back at God for being old. How can this happen? And God said, okay, fine, you laugh at me. Then guess what? You're going to name your child Isaac, which means laughter. That's God's way of, of kind of jabbing back. Gabriel, not so patient. What Gabriel does is he says, oh, okay, you want to laugh at me? Fine. You're not going to talk for nine months and zips his mouth shut. And so what, what happens is there's these really funny moments where, especially at the birth of John, it's, it's really, I, I laughed when I read it because what happened is, is this moment, John is born and they're going to name him Zechariah. Like that's what they were going to do because that's what is, that's the tradition. And so Elizabeth says, no, 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 we need to name him John. We are told to name him John. Everyone's like, no, but nobody in your family is named John. Why would we do that? And they look at Zechariah and he just has to sign that, no, 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 name him John, because he can't speak. And once he's named, then his mouth finally opens and he's able to talk. So Elizabeth, from this moment, she, uh, this moment of uh, this interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel, Elizabeth is pregnant with John. And Gabriel then goes to visit Mary and Joseph separately and informs them about God's plan for Mary giving birth to the promised Messiah. And both of them, Equally shocked, but they're willing to submit to whatever God would have them do. So they, they do it. Now, from that point, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And what happens in this visit is unprecedented, both in this time and in our current time in our culture. When Mary walks through the door of Elizabeth's house, 
they had not talked, like they didn't have cell phones. Right? They didn't have, they hadn't talked at this point. But as soon as Mary walks into the house, Elizabeth exclaims that she, is, that she has the Lord in her womb. And it even goes further than that. John the Baptist, who's in the womb, and she's about six months along at this point, he leaps for joy because Christ has entered the room. Now, the reason why this is unprecedented is we live in a culture that wants to seek to define when life begins. And it's very clear here, just after Mary is conceived with Christ, they have already attached personhood to it immediately. Immediately, as soon as Mary is conceived of the Holy Spirit with Jesus, she walks in the door of of Elizabeth's house and they say, there's my Lord, that's him. They've already attached personhood. It's incredible what happens here. It's astounding that the son of God, the second and greater Adam entered the world, not like the first Adam who came as a fully grown adult, but through, he came through pregnancy and childbirth, just like all of us. And that very fact fills pregnancy, gestation and childbirth with an innumerable amount of dignity and meaning in our world. The infinite God came into the world through the close spaces of a human womb, making the womb and all that is in it sacred and dedicated to the Lord. I'm not the biggest culture wars guy, but I will die on any hill that the Bible does. I live my life that way and I will forever do it. And this is one area that I refuse to see ground on because, and I don't believe that any Christian should either. It's very clear what the Bible says about this particular issue and when life begins. And what comes out of this interaction is a song from Mary that is completely filled with a sense of humility and gratitude. But this song is more than just a nice little jingle. This song is reflective of how all Christians should respond to the idea that they have been uh, rescued by God. So let's get into it. Luke chapter one, verse 46 through 49 says this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So these first three verses set the stage for the rest of them because they show you the posture of Mary's heart. You would think that finding out that you are the chosen carrier of God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah back to Genesis 3.15, you're the one carrying it. You would think that that would result in some kind of pride. I know for me, if I'm sitting in that office and other people in the room and I get a paper ball and I throw it across the room, it goes in that trash can, I look at all of them like they're peasants. I can't imagine how I would feel naturally if I knew that I was carrying God in the flesh. Just look, I would look at everybody like they're, that they're lower, but Mary doesn't do that. She doesn't. Instead, she takes a place of humility. It's the total opposite of what you think would happen. Her heart abounds in humility here. She knows it is not by any merit on her own whatsoever. And what you'll see is that throughout this song, she never points to what she has done. She is constantly saying, he has done, he will do, he is going to do, he has done, constantly over and over and over again, lifting up 
the God of the Bible, the God that fulfills promises. This has nothing to do with her. The only reason why she, why she is singing is because she has recognized her lowly state and she is in need of a savior. That is why she is singing. Legitimately, she did not do anything. She didn't apply for this position. She didn't give God her resume and he chose her out of the crop. She was merely a chosen event in God's redemptive history. She lived her entire life up to this moment in need. And instead of trying to flex any merit, she leaned into the mercy of the Lord. Augustine echoed the same idea about merit. And he said this, the sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. And Mary knew that she herself needed the savior that she carried. She recognized that this was God and and God has done great things, not her. And this is where we deviate from things like Catholicism because we don't attribute any great divine works to Mary at all. She ascribes, in fact, I would even say Mary ascribes none of this to herself. In fact, Mary's trying to push it off, constantly push it off and say, no, not me, God, not me, God. Yes, you just said I'm blessed among all women. Still, not me, God. It's, it's littered throughout this song. She said holy is his name, not hers. She goes as far as to, as to say her soul magnifies the Lord. Like think about when you look through a magnifying glass or you look through a telescope, something that zooms in, you cannot see anything else. Your mind is fixated on what you are zoomed into. And so she is saying my soul magnifies the Lord. It's gigantic in my eyes, gigantic in my heart, gigantic in my soul. I want to only think and care about the Lord right now. That's what she's saying. And just like Mary, we should be very careful to never allow anything to take that place of Christ. That our soul should never magnify anything else other than Jesus. Our souls in response, just like Mary, should look to make Christ big in all that we do. So that sets the stage for the rest of the song. Looking at verse number 50, he says this. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, this, now the Bible is littered throughout this. Uh, you, you have this phrase, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord. It's constantly there. And it's not, this is not a bad fear, like turn around the corner, somebody scares you, ah, drop your coffee. Not that kind of fear. It's a good fear. It's a reverent fear, a rightly placed fear. Like if a lion walks in my backyard, guess where I'm not going? My backyard. Because that's not a petting zoo. I'm supper. That's what happens there. But because I give it a reverent fear, I'm going to rightly respect it. And that's the kind of fear that we see with when the Bible tells us to fear God. It is a rightly placed reverent fear. It, as in, we give him what he is due. And because he's due that, our whole lives centered around it. Because he's done everything, everything that we do must be done to him. This kind of fear, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. As in, you don't get wisdom apart from this. You can learn things, you can get smarter, you can get more intelligent, but wisdom does not happen apart from fearing the Lord. In fact, it will always be askew until you've done that. The fear of the Lord is the cornerstone of learning to be wise. It's uh, like I remember in high school, um, my mom's over here, she doesn't know this. I used to skip school a lot. 
um, a lot. And I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I kind of am because I was good at it. But one, one of those times, me and my friends went to go see Chronicles of Narnia, which, you know, great day, right? Um, as a high schooler, high school guy, a bunch of high school guys going to go see Chronicles of Narnia midday. But we did it. I was not a believer, so I just wanted to go see a movie. I just didn't want to go to school. And so we watched it, and I was like, man, this is a great movie. But I didn't really know the significance of it. Fast forward a year later, I come to know Jesus, and I see that movie again, and my entire mind is blown. So I can watch the movie like the movie, but it's still askew from what the movie was meant to be. That's what being wise in the sight of the Lord is. You, it, it begins with a fear of the Lord. And that until you fear the Lord properly, everything in your eyes will be askew. And in this particular text, fear in turn is also the beginning of mercy. And what's beautiful is that this idea is not just in scripture here, but it's everywhere. Throughout all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. Think about in, in texts like Second Chron- Chronicles 7.14, where God is talking to his people and says, if you would just repent and humble yourself before me, I will heal your land. If you fear the Lord, you will receive mercy. I think about the thief on the cross when he's, Christ is there crucified, nailed to the cross and the two thieves that are next to him, one of them is, is haughty in heart and the other one knows and fears the Lord and says, think of me whenever you pass. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Fear of the Lord leads to mercy. I think about the Pharisees who knew their Bible more than anyone else had the best well, seemingly the best theology in the land. They were the ones that made the rules. They were the ones that were holy. They were the ones that were righteous. They were also the ones that were haughty and prideful. But the tax collectors, the ones that were perceived as terrible humans, the ones that people would perceive as drunks, prostitutes, they knew their lowly state. They were very, very well aware of it. In fact, the Pharisees would have continued to make them aware of it. And so when Christ comes on, they fear the Lord. And what, what gets extended to them? Mercy, not judgment. And we see this, this phrase, this mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this is an, this is an important part, and we'll cover it some here, but we'll really hit, it, hit on it on the end. But fearing the Lord requires action. You cannot properly say that you fear the Lord, as in you give God his right and due attention and reorient the way that you live your life. You cannot say you do it if action in your life is not accompanied with it. This is the entire book of James, that faith without works is dead. And it's not because works make the faith, but works are the fruit of true faith. That true faith in Christ results in you orienting your life around him. And when you do that, that kind, of, that kind of faith, that kind of life passes from generation to generation because children are discipled more often by what is caught and less about what is taught. Now, you still have to teach your children. You still have to teach them what it means to worship the Lord, but there is a way in which you live your life 
where your children will serve as a mirror for what you actually fear. If you actually fear that they won't do well in school or actually fear that they will be unsuccessful in sports or actually fear that they won't be popular or they won't be liked, if you actually fear how your job is going or you actually fear about how money is in your house, if you actually fear those things, then your children will reflect those same fears in their life and they will be shaped and molded by them. But if you live a life that is marked by a fear of the Lord, they will also model that. I think that's why in Deuteronomy 6, you see almost these action items to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says to put them on the frontlets of their eyes and on the the gateposts and on their wrists. It's this, this idea that you should actively be fearing the Lord and reorient all of your family's lifestyle around the idea that we ought to know him, worship him, and obey him. And that's what it means for that fear of the Lord, that mercy that comes with it to proceed from generation to generation. And any time in the Old Testament you see a break in that message is when people stopped fearing him. They stopped fearing God. All right, verse 51. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So Mary takes a moment here to show how powerful God is, or at least pay, pay the proper homage to it. God has shown strength with his arm, the same God, the creator God of the universe who has created everything from small to large to you to the last star that exists in the universe. In fact, Hebrews 1 says that he holds everything together by the word of his power. Have you ever really stopped to think about that? That everything from the very atoms in your body down to the entirety of the universe known to man and beyond that, Christ is holding everything together by the word of his power. Everything. As in, he could stop holding it together. Gone incredible. It's an immense amount of power. It's the same God that didn't just create everything, but controls the seas, controls the the land, controls everything, and is using that to accomplish his mission, accomplish his story, accomplish his narrative. The drama of the Bible is accomplished by God flexing and showing his strength so that we might bow to him, that we might worship him. But when we don't do that, when we don't worship him, when we don't bow, Mary says that God has scattered the thoughts for, the, for those that are prideful, scattered the thoughts of their hearts, which is a weird statement, right? Because we would say thoughts don't happen in the heart, thoughts happen in the mind. But I think what she's trying to get at and what she's saying, and some, some people have translated it this word this way, they that it's not the thoughts of the heart, but it's the imagination of the heart. Some translations will use that word. And it's this idea that we, in, inside of our hearts, we imagine how a world should be, and that's how we will live our life. Not how God has said it should be, but how we imagine it should be. 
we have a tendency to look not at ourselves, but look to others and point out the problems in others. But the truth is, is that in this moment right now, where pride can take root in our hearts, we ought to look at ourselves because pride is both dangerous and sorrowful when we don't see it. The premise of pride is that we think that nothing is wrong. That's what makes someone prideful. So it's a blind spot. But the Bible says for the proud that God has scattered the thoughts of the heart. Or in other words, he has scattered the imaginations of the heart. What this means for us is that the, the prideful, the proud, they have taken the posture of the heart that seeks to redefine what is good and right in their own eyes. In other words, they imagine in their heart what is good, what is right, and the world should be that way. I could really couldn't care less about what God says about it. I define what is right. That is the imagination of the heart, the thought of the heart that God has scattered. This is what Romans chapter 1 means when it says that God gives us over to a debased mind. When he scatters the thoughts, scatters the imaginations of the heart, he gives us over to them. When we decide in our pride that we know what's best and we will do what's best, it doesn't matter what God says, we will redefine what is right. That's when God says, fine, go for it. Take a swing. See how it goes. And that couldn't be more detrimental to us than what we fear. Because the reason why we try to take control of this, uh, of our life and redefine what is right so that way we can be more comfortable, the reason why we do that is because we fear something. We are always operating in a functional savior, functional hell type of lifestyle. If I'm, uh, if I'm single, that can be my functional hell. My functional hell is that I'm no longer with someone. So therefore, when I start dating them, they now become my functional savior. And I will seek to control what is my savior so that way I never lose it. This idea of control can shape how we see the world. These are the imaginations of the heart, the thoughts of the heart. When we try to redefine what God has said is good and what God, when we reject what God has said is good, sometimes he gives us over to it. And that is more terrifying than having to sacrifice what we think is good. The same idea, the scattering the thoughts of the, imagin- the, thoughts of the heart and the imaginations of the heart, the same idea is used to describe what God did at the Tower of Babel. They attempted to ascend to the position of God, and God confused their language and scattered them abroad. So when God scatters the imaginations or thoughts of our hearts, it is sent into a myriad of directions that can't possibly have unity. Our position on what we think is right is solely based on, what, on how we feel in that moment, in the experiences that we have had. Rather than being anchored in God's objective truth, we are at the mercy of our subjective truth. And the only, pers- the only end to this pursuit is legalism and heartache. I, uh, my life was marked in a pretty significant way by lack, a, either a lack of a father or good fathers. My father passed away whenever I was seven years old, and I have some good memories of him, but a lot of the memories are, are not good. I remember him being angry. I remember him breaking windows. I remember, I remember the yelling, the screaming. I, re- I remember those things. And then fast forward after he passes away whenever I was seven, around 12 years old, I have a stepdad. And my stepdad at the time was an alcoholic mess who was physically 
emotionally and verbally abusive. And I remember being 16 years old and, and sitting at the computer desk after watching all of these men that I perceived to be absolute failures. I remember saying, I will be the best father and best husband that's ever existed. And that sounds noble. It sounds noble. But the truth is, is that what's happened in that moment is I have, I have become the judge of what a, the best father looks like. I have become the judge of what the best husband looks like. I have now become the judge. And the truth is, is that everyone who fails those standards gets judged. But what happens whenever I fail my own standards? Do I judge? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't lose. I just adjust the standard. Because the proud person will always adjust the finish line to meet their own pace. When we put, when we put our experiences in what we think is right in the place of God, we become the poor judge that ends up hurting everyone. We cannot control things the way that God controls things. And this is what it means when Mary says that kings have ascended to the throne and God has removed the mighty from them. Because sometimes God scatters the imaginations of our heart and sometimes he just removes you from the throne altogether. Sometimes God will lovingly usher things out of your life and sometimes you'll let go of them. And then there are times where you hold so tightly onto things because you have to control it that God will break your fingers to let go of it out of an act of mercy, out of an act of grace. And those are some of the heartaches that we experience. And we experience those because we attempt to ascend the throne and control things and be mighty. But God will not have a threat to the throne. And so God removes the mighty from the throne. I heard one pastor say it this way, we can either live a life marked by humility or we'll live a life marked by being humiliated. Because that's what it means to walk in a humbled state. What it means to submit ourselves before the Lord. Our hearts, if we, are, if we leave them at their own will, are prideful. That's the way that they will go. We must make concerted efforts to pursue the opposite of that. Now, what does the text tell us? It says that God exalts those in a humbled state. And this is true across all of scripture. I mean, think the very premise of the gospel is that the God of the universe who holds everything together by the word of his power came to be a child. The very premise of the gospel is that God humbled himself. David is another example Samuel goes to David's house to find the next king. Not to mention the king that already exists, Saul, is a, is a good foot taller than everybody else, a specimen of a man. And he goes to David's house and there's more specimen. They're just, they're all incredible. All jacked, all can play music. They're just great. And he gets there and he goes through each one and none, none of them fit the bill. But there is one that's supposed to be there. He's not there. He's a ruddy little heart playing sheep joking with boy. His name's David. 
and he's a ruddy little boy that gets selected to be the next king, arguably the greatest king in the Old Testament. And that's an example of a ruddy boy, but when Jesus goes to choose his disciples, he doesn't go for ruddy, he goes for rejects. He chooses the men that have been rejected from society, those that are fishermen, those that are tax collectors. On and on you could go with those 12 disciples, and they were all rejected by everyone else in a humbled state. So what this means for us is that we have to cease being the arbiter of what is true and submit ourselves underneath God's truth, God's word. This means that we have to stop looking at those around us and comparing ourselves to them. That the marker for what is faithful and not faithful, what is obedient and not obedient, is, is not what other people are doing. The marker of obedience is how we're submitting to God. It's how we are allowing our hearts and our souls to be in a humbled state in submission to what God has asked for us. That is the marker of obedience, not whether or not somebody else is being obedient. Or maybe you're being just a little bit less disobedient or a little bit more obedient than them. I love Facebook and Instagram, but they are terrible ways to judge whether or not you are faithful and obedient. Friends, submit yourself to God. Who does the Bible say that you are? Submit to that, not what other people say. Not even what you say. Okay, verse number 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The Bible, especially Jesus, is constantly referring to money. So whether you have Jesus ministering to the poor, talking to the poor, or saying things like in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, or referring to how money is the only thing outside of God that he refers to as being your master, Jesus is constantly talking about money because it has a way of capturing the heart. And the idea is not that money is bad, it's just that if it's left unchecked, the posture of the heart will lean towards being towards your heart being satisfied in things, in material things. That's the heart of it. And the truth is is that you can make all the money in the world. It will never satisfy. It will never give you the joy, the peace, the happiness that you're looking for. It might give you it temporarily, but it'll never last. You'll have to keep going back. And by the way, if you make all the money in the world, we're trying to pay off some land on the road, so you can... You come talk to me afterwards. I, uh, I was watching this video the other day that a friend shared with me, and it's with these two influencers. So you may know them, you may not. It was sent to me. One of them was, uh, his name was Logan Paul. The other one's his friend, George. And George is genuinely a believer. He really does love Jesus. And you can tell in his interaction with Logan that, that he's really trying to get him to love him. He's really trying to reorient how he sees it. Because I think Logan is a professed believer, but he's clearly not living the way that he should. And George is trying to correct him. And it's an incredible moment caught on social media that I've, just, I've never really seen before. But George is walking in through why he needs to pray and how he should pray and, and why it's important that he asks, he asks God for things. And Logan just says, I don't really need to ask him for anything. I'm just grateful. But that's precisely the problem because he isn't grateful. He isn't as grateful as he thinks he is because he doesn't understand that all that he has is not a result of his own merit, but of the grace of God. Plenty of people, thousands of people have tried to do what he he is doing and be successful at it and have massively failed. 
You may be good at what you do, but it's not because you're, you are good based on your own merit. You are good because God designed you. You are good because God has opened doors and closed doors and made ways for you, for you to flourish and others not. The reason why we see any success in life is because of the unadulterated grace of God. It's the only way. So guys like Logan Paul may have millions of dollars from being a social media influencer, but at the end of the day, it is because of the grace of God, not because he's funny. And so a life of gratitude is not one that is just acknowledging how grateful they are. A life of gratitude that orients their life around God is one that is in a humbled state that submits before him and knows that I have nothing apart from him. The rich state of the heart doesn't feel like they need to ask anything of God because all of their needs are fully met. And I think that's why Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get through an eye of a needle. It's, it's not because being rich is bad and that rich sends you to hell. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that the, if left unchecked, the rich man will find all of his needs just met with material things. He'll have no dependence. And Jesus says that that's a dangerous place to be. And, and if that is where you are, then I think you have to be much more intentional about the way that you live your life. But the feeling of gratitude, like a true feeling of gratitude, not critical of other people, but but grateful for what is going on in your life, grateful for what the Lord has provided for, that kind of gratitude is powerful. It's powerful. And that's why Mary, I think, refers to this idea of being hungry, that they hunger for God. I think why she refers to that because being hungry is a place of humility. Being hungry is a place of vulnerability that uh, must rely on God. Being humble is properly understanding your sin juxtaposed against God's holiness. And being amazed that God would ever, in his holiness and our sinfulness, choose to be in the same room with us. That is humbling. God is honored when sinners like myself and sinners like you are hungry to be freed from their sin and starving to live a holy life. This kind of humility produces a genuine heart of gratitude regardless of whether or not what is given to you is good or bad. Because both good and bad have a way of showing you the good things, the the good mercy of God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. We ought to give thanks for all of our fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If bad, because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world, and the eternal hope of our eternal country. This kind of heart of gratitude is powerful beyond all belief. It transcends our circumstances and allows us to truly find peace in Christ. That it doesn't matter how bad your family life gets. It doesn't matter if you lose your job. It doesn't matter if things just go completely off the rails. If you are grateful for what God has done in your life, it transcends anything good and anything bad that comes your way. 
it doesn't mean that we ignore the troubled areas of our life. It just means that we don't set up camp there. You see, we often get in hot water when we place our flag on the ground in the midst of our pain. When something troubling comes our way and we decide to stop and ruminate on that instead of saying, God, what are you doing? Not asking the question, God, why would you do this? Why would you allow it? Not asking that, but saying, God, what are you doing? God, I know you're good. I know you're faithful. Please show me what you're doing that I may not question that. We get ourselves in hot water when we place our flag in the ground in the midst of our pain and start being concerned with why and what could have been better and how we would have done it better. That's when our souls start to get in a bad place. Our hearts should be so enamored with gratitude, with what God has provided for us, that get sure maybe God may take some things away and those things may be painful. But lest you forget, friends, God is constantly providing on a day-to-day basis. Daily, he's providing in ways that you don't even realize at times. Our hearts should be so enamored with gratitude that we long for, we hunger after a life that would bring God glory. All right, I'll read these last couple verses. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So theologians, when they're talking about uh, the covenants between God and man, they refer to two major ones. There's a lot of them. Uh, some of them are kind of splitting hairs, but there's two re- real big major buckets that constantly get brought up. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So covenant of works being the covenant that he made with Adam. As in, if you obey me, you will receive eternal life. If you disobey me, you will receive death. That's the covenant of works. Your the, the reception of what you get is solely based on your works, solely based on what you do, good or bad. If it's good, you'll get good. If it's bad, you'll get bad. Covenant of works. We know how that story ends. doesn't go well. Now, the covenant of grace is that wh- whether or not you receive eternal life or eternal damnation is not based on your works, but it's based on the grace of God. Long story short. But there's another covenant that's mentioned that isn't talked about enough because it's not explicit. But when you look at the character of God, it's clear. It's called the covenant of redemption. And that's that before the foundation of the earth, God knowing all things, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, made a covenant within themselves that they will redeem man. That they are singular in their purpose, singular in their focus, singular in their plan. They are united. It is one mission, one goal, redeem man. At all costs, It is out of the covenant of redemption that you get works, grace, and everything else. And that is what Mary is referring to when she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That all promises that we see in the entirety of the Bible flow into this moment right now with Mary all the promises given to to the forefathers, all the promises given from God to man, they culminate here in Christ's conception. And that is what Mary is celebrating. That is what she's singing about. Ultimately, what Mary knew was coming and what we know is done is the gospel. 
that Mary knew that in Genesis 3.15, there was given the first gospel, that out of the womb of woman was going to come a savior that will crush the enemy and save mankind. And that at the end of the day, his heel might be bruised, but the enemy's head will be crushed. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel. And from that moment on, it is constantly referred to over and over and over again. And so when Christ is, is here and he's there and, and God shows up and says, the Messiah is going to come from you. She can sing with a glad and joyful heart because she knows that everything that has been told about for thousands of years is now at its peak. That Christ is going to be born and live a sinless life, the life that we were supposed to live that we couldn't. He was going to endure a crucifixion that we deserved. He was going to rise again on the third day triumphantly over sin, death, hell, and the grave. She knew that that's what was coming, and we stand here today knowing that that's finished. That there's coming a day where sin, pain will be no more. Tears will be no more. There's coming a day where God will make all things new. We know that today. And so just in the same way that Mary can sing and exclaim and extol the good, wonderful things about God, so can we. Maybe even more so because we know it's finished. We sit on a different side of eternity right now. And that's what makes today special for all of us in the room, but particularly for the mothers. God has given us and you the amazing task of passing this message on to the next generation. That one of the biggest worries that Christians have today, the reason why there's this big removal of kids from public school and going to homeschool is because of this one singular thought. We are worried about what is influencing our children. One of the biggest worries for Christians today is what is influencing and shaping our children. And so we look to the schools. But if you look upstream from the schools, you'll find the media. And if you look a little bit further upstream than that, you will find from the media, you'll find politicians who shape the media. And up from there, from the politicians, you will find people who shape the politicians. And if you look just past that, you'll find the church. Historically, culture is always formed by the presence of or the lack of presence of the church. As in the church is always the shaping the culture, even if it's not doing anything, it's shaping it in a bad way. And so why not allow today to be the day where we stop and recenter, reorient our life the way that Mary did here, reorient our life around this, the God that has rescued us, that has made good on his promise and will continue to do it. Why not allow this day to be that day that we stop and say, it's going to be different? Because I can tell you this, that if this church is a church filled with people that live life in a humbled state and reorient their life around following Jesus at all costs, the world will be different. Like, and I don't mean that in like, sure, you're a pastor on stage preaching, you're supposed to say the world will be different. No, I mean like legitimately like Ephesus type stuff, economies flipped on its head. 
people not knowing what to do, their entire lives flipped upside down, that kind of stuff. When a church stops and says, no, I'm going to reorient my life around God, that's how you make the gospel unignorable. Why not allow today to stop allowing the things of this world and the problems we face to dictate how we make decisions? I would make the case, friends, that like Mary, let's let today be the day that we look to our Savior because he's worthy. If you stand, I'll pray for us. Father God, we come before you today and we acknowledge the places of our heart that are haughty, that want to take control, that want to be able to redefine what is good so that, we, so that way we can get what we want. God, I can't speak for everyone in this room, but I know that my heart constantly wants to drift away from you. My heart constantly wants to drift towards me making the right decision, me defining what is good. And so God, if there be any places in our hearts that want control, that are prideful, would you find them and expose them and help us to repent of them? God, would you meet us here today, encourage us, and show us the grace that can only be found in you and the peace that only flows out of that mercy. That's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.